Before we begin today's show, let me just say that Cody and I would like to dedicate this week's episode to our friend Frank Uslidge, who passed away today after a massive heart attack last week. Frank was a great supporter of not only the show, but everything that American Hauntings does. He was also a really good friend, and we're going to miss him a lot. Not seeing his face at upcoming events is going to be a shock for quite a while, and uh, I hope that he enjoys this episode wherever he's listening on the other side. Hey, American Hauntings fans, it's Troy. You can listen to all the episodes of our latest season on Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite shows. But you're probably thinking, hey, I've already listened to all the shows from the new season, and we appreciate that. But you haven't if you don't know about our other podcast called Dead Men Do Tell Tales that's available only on Patreon. We have two full seasons of that show available now, and our new season will kick off on May 9th. So become a supporter and check out that podcast at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And don't miss out on having more American Hauntings in your life. But now, on with the show. One hot afternoon in July 1854, a farmer named Orion Williamson was sitting on the front porch of his home in Selma, Alabama. His wife, Rebecca, and their daughter were by his side. It was brutally hot. The air wasn't moving, and the Williamsons had come out onto the porch to escape the stifling heat inside the house. Orion took a long drink of well water. It had been pleasantly cold when his wife had pumped it from below the ground a few minutes before, but it was already turning warm. But at least it was wet, he thought. As he squinted into the bright sunshine, his gaze fell on the 10-acre pasture where his horses were grazing. Orion stood up and told Rebecca, I forgot to tell Andrew about those horses. Andrew was his hired hand, and Orion had planned to ask him to make sure the horses were ready to go into town the next day. He needed to find him and make sure the task was tended to. Rebecca later remembered her husband stepping down from the porch and walking out into the field. He picked up a small stick and absentmindedly swished it back and forth as he walked through the ankle-high grass. Just as Orion was walking out into the field, a neighboring farmer, Armour Wren, and his son James were returning home from Selma and passed by the pasture. Their buggy traveled along the road that ran alongside the field. They paused when they saw Orion walking toward them, and Armour stood and waved to him. He saw his friend smile and lift a hand and return the gesture. Then, with four sets of eyes on him, Orion Williamson abruptly vanished. A moment earlier, he'd walked away from his wife and daughter and waved at his friend and his friend's son, and the next moment, he vanished into thin air. Well, stunned, Armour and James Wren jumped from their buggy and ran out into the field, hurrying toward the spot where Orion was last seen. Rebecca, who was carrying her child, quickly met them there. They breathlessly searched the grass but saw nothing but open ground, no rocks, holes, or anything else that might explain how Orion had disappeared. It was impossible, but the man was gone. 
Armour, James, and Rebecca searched the field for nearly two hours. They found nothing. And when the realization of what had occurred finally struck Rebecca, she collapsed in shock. While James Wren cared for her baby, Armour drove Rebecca to Selma, where she was hospitalized. While he was in town, Armour spread the news about what had occurred. It was soon the talk of the barbershops, pool halls, and taverns, and more than 300 men gathered at the Williamson farm to help with the search. The men formed three hand-to-hand rows and moved across the field inches at a time, stopping every few feet to kneel and examine the ground for openings or holes. The ranks searched the field over and over again at least a dozen times. When night fell, they used torches and lanterns to light up the pasture. Bloodhounds were brought in and they picked up Orion's scent, but could only follow his trail to the spot in the field where he vanished. When they reached it, they turned in circles and barked. They would go no further. The following morning, the men returned and brought more volunteers with them. Farmers came from nearby communities and from miles away, all offering to help. Later in the morning, a team of geologists arrived from a nearby university. They started digging at the spot where Orion disappeared, but only a few feet below the surface, they found solid bedrock. There were no caves, crevices, or sinkholes to explain where the man had gone. Orion Williamson had inexplicably vanished. And while that was obviously strange, it didn't prepare anyone for what happened next. The following spring, an odd circle of dead grass formed in the pasture at the exact spot where Orion was last seen. Rebecca Williamson was alerted to the curious event by her farmhands, but at first she said nothing. She seemed to still be so traumatized by her husband's vanishing that she was reluctant to mention his name or think too much about what had happened to him, fearing a return to the hospital. Or was there more to her behavior? Some of Orion's friends, including Armour Wren, came to see Rebecca. They expressed their concern about her health and then got around to pointing out the strange circle that had appeared in the field. In a fearful voice, Rebecca finally explained why she was so afraid to talk about her husband. She told them that after she had returned from the hospital the previous summer, only days after Orion had vanished, she and her daughter had distinctly heard Orion's voice calling out to her for help. They ran to the spot where the voice came from, but there was no one and nothing there. The voice continued to call to her for almost two weeks, but Orion's voice became weaker and weaker as the days passed. On the last night the voice was heard, Rebecca and her daughter slept on the ground at the spot where he'd vanished, praying for him to return. But they only heard Orion's whispers, and then he was heard no more. The sensational story of Orion Williamson attracted attention from reporters and journalists across the South and Midwest, and speculation about what happened to the farmer continued for years. One of the writers who became fascinated with the case and decided to investigate it himself was a young man named Ambrose Bierce. He was only a student when the disappearance occurred, but his interest in unsolved mysteries led to him writing an account of it called the difficulty of crossing a field. The story seemed impossible, but Bierce was assured that it had happened. Orion Williamson was a real person, by the way. 
According to census records, he was a resident of Selma, Alabama in 1854, although his residence was tragically cut short that hot afternoon in July. Bierce interviewed the volunteers who searched the field, the geologists who excavated the field, and so-called experts who claimed to know where Orion Williamson had gone. One of them, Dr. Maximilian Hearn, was a scientist who studied strange vanishings and claimed that Orion had walked into what he called a void spot of universal ether, whatever that means. He explained these spots only lasted for a few seconds, but could destroy any and all material elements that entered them. Other scientists, occultists, and crackpots had theories too. One said he believed Williamson walked into a periodic magnetic field that disintegrated his atomic structure and sent him into another dimension. Another believed that creatures who lived on the moon had taken him off the planet. There were a lot of theories, but none helped find Orion Williamson. He was immortalized by the story written about him, but in real life, he seemed to be gone for good. After discovering Orion Williamson's story, Ambrose Bierce began to believe that it was possible for people to simply disappear without an earthly explanation. He became almost obsessed with the idea and wrote many stories about such things, like the chilling tale called The Spook House, in which two travelers enter a house in Kentucky, but only one emerges. And of course, the story of Charles Ashmore that we opened our last episode with. Ambrose Bierce became one of the most famous American writers of the early 20th century. He was an odd, unusual, eccentric, and often disagreeable man. In the San Francisco of 1900, he reigned as the unchallenged literary king of the city and was considered the best-known writer west of the Rocky Mountains. Along with Jack London, he was one of the most acclaimed writers of the period, although his literary career turned out to be tragically short. Why was that, you might ask? Well, you see, Ambrose Bierce, like those literary characters he created in his mind, vanished one day without a trace, and his disappearance has never been solved. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place filled with mystery and strangeness. It's a place where tragic events occur and where mysteries exist for which no rational explanation can be found. Those mysteries include unexplained disappearances, just like the ones we've been discussing this season. We've been opening the files on people who have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Their stories are often bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes seem impossible, but one thing we know is that they did happen, and that these people simply walked out the door one day and never returned. Their stories have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries unsolved. They are gone, but we won't allow them to be forgotten. 
This is episode eight of our latest season, the story of one of American history's most successful but unlikable authors. He was a man whose obsession with unsolved disappearances may have led directly to his own. Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce was born in Meigs County, Ohio on June 24, 1842. In his family were nine brothers and sisters, all christened with names that started with the letter A. Abigail, Addison, Aurelius, Amelia, Anne, Augustus, Andrew, Almeida, Albert, and Ambrose. It might be expected that parents who named their children so whimsically could be warm and devoted, but according to Bierce, they weren't. In fact, Bierce grew into a child who saw no good in either of his parents. In time, he wrote five short stories, which he collected under the title of Parenticide, the killing of one's own parents. One story, an imperfect conflagration, began, quote, Early one June morning in 1872, I murdered my father, an act which made a deep impression on me at the time, unquote. Whatever his upbringing was like, though, Bierce's father was an avid reader and had accumulated a large personal library, which Bierce explored as a boy. During his voracious reading of books and newspapers, he became an ardent abolitionist as a young man and went to work for an anti-slavery newspaper in northern Indiana. As he began writing, he realized his life's work and spent the next several years as a journalist, eking out a living with very little pay. Doubting he'd ever be rich from writing without an education, he briefly attended the Kentucky Military Institute, but left in 1859 without a degree. This failure would bedevil him through his critics for the rest of his life, as they complained about his poor grammar and lack of technical skill. But Bierce paid little attention to their complaints. He was a born storyteller, and his success was achieved by connecting to those that mattered, his readers. Maybe it was his childhood, or maybe it was his disdain for other people, but Bierce made few friends and became cynical when he was young and decided never to change his views of the world. He reveled in the unknown and lived a fairly adventurous life. Early on, he became known for his writings about war and his tales of ghosts and horror. The story of Orion Williamson sparked his interest in weird happenings and strange disappearances, but it was his service during the Civil War that provided inspiration for his gritty stories of death and bloodshed. Bierce would always consider the war to be his finest hour. He enlisted in the 9th Indiana Infantry at age 18 and fought in the Civil War during the bloody battles of Shiloh, Murfreesboro, Kennesaw Mountain, Franklin, and Nashville. His bravery earned him battlefield commissions, and by the time he was discharged in 1865, he'd been promoted to the rank of major. Bierce may have loved the adventure, action, and camaraderie of the battlefield, but the war took a great physical toll on him. He was wounded twice during the fighting, but always returned to his unit when he recovered. He loved the war, but his brother Albert always believed it changed him in terrible ways. He said Ambrose was never the same after a head wound that hospitalized him for weeks. He later said, some of the iron of the shell seemed to stick to his brain and he became bitter and suspicious. After the war, Bierce joined a military expedition that traveled west to the Pacific Ocean. 
Along the way, the soldiers faced harsh terrain, starvation, and hostile Native Americans, and Bierce loved every minute of it. When he made it to the West Coast, he decided to settle in wild San Francisco among the miners, gamblers, prostitutes, and Chinese immigrants. Things were beginning to change in the West, and the city needed a good newspaper man. Bierce went to work and soon became the most popular columnist in the city. He earned a reputation for his sharp wit and cutting sense of humor, and also because he was considered to be as odd and unpredictable as the people he was writing about. No one could deny, though, he was strikingly handsome. He stood just over six feet tall, and his straight posture was left over from his military life. His eyes under reddish blonde brows were blue and piercing. His flowing hair and luxuriant mustache were blonde, with red streaks running through the gold. And if his looks were not enough, Bierce had a commanding vitality. Gossips often spoke of how women swooned at the sight of him, and one even noted that, quote, young ladies claimed they could feel him when he stood 10 feet away. But the magnetic attraction that he had going for him really didn't do much good. Despite his good looks, Bierce was a disaster when it came to women. He would even admit that he worshipped them too much, putting them on a pedestal from which they were guaranteed to fall. Once he discovered the flesh and blood failings of whatever goddess he'd fallen for, his passions turned from love to hatred. His tirades against women became infamous, especially after he single-handedly destroyed his marriage to society girl Ellen Day. They were married long enough to produce two sons and a daughter, but he never stopped despising his wife for failing to meet his impossible standards. His hatred for their mother kept him from ever becoming too close to his sons, who died young, but he did have a deep, loving relationship with his daughter, Helen. She, of course, would never be able to fail him because she was not his wife. But it wasn't just his wife that Bierce despised. He made a lot of enemies in San Francisco. When his sharp wit turned against you, it was guaranteed to make you bleed. His writings contained a level of viciousness and brutality unrivaled in journalism of the day, and he received scores of death threats and promises of violence. Bets were even placed in local gambling parlors on how long he'd live. It became so bad he always carried a pistol when he left the house. In Bierce's defense, though, his criticisms may not have been subtle, but he was impartial when it came to those who were targets of his abuse. In other words, Bierce hated nearly everyone the exact same amount. Well, after Bierce successfully torpedoed his marriage, he took a long trip to London. It was there that he solidified his reputation as a curmudgeon and cynic because the Brits simply ate it up. He hated London and he wasn't shy about saying so and they loved him even more for it. The more terrible his descriptions of England were, the more he was applauded for them. Bierce was no longer merely a journalist. He was now writing seriously and full-time. Ironically, his first poison-filled pieces about London were sold to a magazine called Fun. <laughs> the gloomy, sarcastic stories were so well-received that issues of the magazine flew off the stands and readers demanded reprints. In 1871, they were collected into a book he called Cobwebs from an Empty Skull. Bierce's work attracted a lot of attention, as well as a job editing and writing for another magazine called The Lantern. 
The magazine was financed by the popular Empress Eugenie of France, who was anxious for the British to see her at a good light after she'd made headlines all over Europe for scandals she'd been involved in. Well, Bierce became her co-conspirator, enhancing her image and creating propaganda for a hefty salary. British opinion soon swung strongly in favor of the Empress, who decided to show appreciation for Bierce by commanding him to come and see her at home. Well, the Empress obviously had no idea who she was dealing with. Bierce stated that he hadn't followed anyone's orders since he left the army, and he certainly wasn't going to allow a woman to tell him where to be and when. He never showed up at the party that the Empress had planned and never offered an excuse for his absence. Eugenie was outraged and she fired him. And as you can imagine, Bierce didn't care. In 1874, he decided to go home. When Bierce returned to San Francisco, he was surprised to discover he'd become a celebrity in his absence. Most people probably liked him even more simply because he wasn't there, but others praised his writings in London and the publication of his book. Well, he was soon back at work writing for two competing daily newspapers because, well, why not? Bierce moved into a new home, refusing to reconcile with his wife, and decided to take being a drunk out for a spin. He'd always been a drinker, but began doubling what he considered a reasonable amount in the past. He boasted proudly that no matter how much he drank, he always remained on his feet long enough to pay for the last round. But liquor did manage to alter Bierce's life in unhappy ways. One night after a long day of boozing, he wandered off track on his way home and stumbled into a graveyard to sleep off the effects of the whiskey. Sleeping out in the open on a foggy San Francisco night, he came down with a chill that turned into an illness that lingered for weeks. He developed asthma from the illness, which plagued him for the rest of his life. While hoping to soothe his asthma by getting away from the dirty air of the city, he moved into the hills around San Francisco and sent his newspaper columns back by messenger. It wasn't long before he was hailed as the most popular writer west of the Rockies. Bierce's success occurred at the same time that a young man was making a name for himself by buying up newspapers and becoming one of the largest publishers in the country. His name was William Randolph Hearst, and Bierce was soon one of his star writers. Even though the partnership between them continued for more than 20 years, the two men despised one another. They had frequent arguments, and Bierce resigned at least once a month. At one other point in the same month, Hearst likely fired him. And yes, somehow, they continued to work together. Hearst helped to recruit new readers for Bierce, and Bierce made enough money for Hearst that he was able to continue building his empire. As Bierce once wrote to the delight of his readers, quote, working for Hearst has all of the satisfactions of masturbation. But Hearst couldn't have cared less about Bierce's opinion of him. He was more worried about sensationalism and rising circulations than insults. Stories, essays, and columns by Bierce appeared in hundreds of Hearst papers, including the New York Journal, Chicago American, and the San Francisco Chronicle, as well as in his tremendously popular magazine, Cosmopolitan. And no, not the same Cosmopolitan that offers quizzes about how to tell if your man loves you or what sex positions are the best that we have today. Ambrose Bierce became a household name in the early 1900s, and audiences loved his attacks on everyone from politicians to preachers, as well as his short stories about the Civil War, the Bazaar, 
and the curious. He was regarded as one of the first American writers of the macabre that was good enough to follow in the footsteps of Edgar Allan Poe. Collections of his stories like Fantastic Fables and Can Such Things Be began to appear and readers snapped them up. Many of the stories were based on real-life happenings, or claimed to be, and Bierce's mixing of fact with fiction made him a creator far ahead of his time and makes it so that his work still holds up today. As mentioned earlier, many of his stories involved unexplained disappearances, and Bierce even interviewed people who witnessed or were connected with such events. It was around this time that Bierce even started to joke to his daughter and to his few close friends about the possibility of his own disappearance. In a few years, though, those jokes wouldn't be so funny. Bierce became known as a grouchy but largely good-natured curmudgeon, but some of those who were close to him believed this was a mask to hide his loneliness. He lived mostly alone in the rustic California hills. Occasionally, a woman joined him for a while, but it never lasted for long. He never seemed able to sustain a relationship with any woman but his daughter. He was still married, but had no relationship other than a disagreeable one with his wife. He always grew to hate any woman who was attracted to him. He allowed them to stay with him for a while, but would always end up considering them damaged because they were willing to give themselves to a married man. He found his greatest companionship with animals. He loved cats and just about any other creature, except for dogs. He hated them for some reason. He kept a lizard as a pet for many years and the animal perched on his shoulder each day as he wrote. When the lizard died, he found a humble garden toad to serve as his new riding companion. He grew so fond of the toad that he let it hop around on the table when he ate his meals, much to the dismay of any guests at the table. After the publications of stories he wrote, like The Damned Thing and The Monk and The Hangman's Daughter, Bierce truly became a national celebrity. He was never a best-selling author like Mark Twain or Jack London, perhaps because of his frequent inclusion of death and the supernatural in his tales, but also perhaps for just that reason, a devout cult of followers did begin following his work. Certainly, the darkness of some of his stories influenced those readers. Two fellow writers and readers who admired Bierce met particularly violent ends. Author George Serling committed suicide and Herman Schaffauer killed his wife and then himself. It was widely publicized that the two men idolized Bierce and their gruesome deaths added to his popularity within his unusual fan base. In 1909, Hearst sent Bierce to Washington, D.C. to cover a story involving California millionaire Collis P. Huntington. The Washington climate, which was humid and hot in the summer and bitingly cold in the winter, was disliked by most of the residents of the nation's capital, but of course, Bierce loved it. He claimed that his asthma actually improved in Washington, which seems difficult to believe, especially since Washington had been regarded as America's dirtiest city for decades, but Bierce decided he would move there. He planned to continue writing for Hearst and spend his free time editing his collected works with help from his new devoted secretary, Carrie Christensen, the only woman besides his daughter he could stand to be around. 
it was probably because Carrie was too young and too smart to ever consider sleeping with him. With his other published works still selling well, Beers continued to have a steady income as he worked on his past writings. With Carrie's help, he spent the next three years reworking every story and poem he'd ever written, including the bane of every high school freshman's existence, the occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. When Beers finished this project in 1912, he looked around and tried to decide what he wanted to do next. He was now 70 years old but wanted to wring everything out of his last days that he could. So he made a decision, or rather two decisions, about the rest of his existence. First, he would retrace the life that he spent on the battlefields of the Civil War. He wanted to go back and see the places where his youth had ended, where he'd watched men fight and die, and where he'd managed to survive. This was the war that he'd fought in the past. Secondly, he would go to Mexico where he might have the chance to fight in a war in the present one last time. South of the American border in 1913, the forces of revolutionary Pancho Villa were fighting against the armies of Mexico's dictator, President Victoriano Huerta. The United States, more than a little concerned about what was happening so close by, had adopted a policy of watching and waiting. American troops were stationed at Laredo, Texas, but anyone who stepped over the border found themselves in the middle of Vila's ragged yet spirited army. Beers was determined to see what was happening in Mexico for himself. The Civil War had been the greatest experience of his life, and he wanted to see combat one last time before he took his last breath. In October 1913, his trip began. He retraced his steps through Shiloh, Chickamauga, Murfreesboro, Kennesaw Mountain, Franklin, and Nashville. After that, he stayed in New Orleans for a short time, and while he was there, a reporter managed to land an interview with him. And Bierce made the claim that he'd never amounted to much after the Civil War, but he added, quote, I'm on my way to Mexico because I like the game. I like fighting. I want to see it. During his journey, Bierce wrote long, almost daily letters to Carrie Christensen in Washington, and less frequently to his daughter Helen in Detroit. The letters continued until mid-December when Bierce reached Laredo, Texas. His last letter to Carrie, dated December 16, 1913, was full of information, detailing the local color and his excitement about seeing the Mexican Revolution. It also contained a cryptic message, quote, I am going into Mexico with a pretty definite purpose, which is not at present disclosable. We'll never know exactly what that meant. Another letter to Helen would follow. In it, he described crossing the border into Juarez, which had been recently liberated by Pancho Villa. The rebel leader, once abandoned and now a general, issued press credentials to Beers so that he could safely accompany the army. By 1913, Beers had not ridden a horse in 30 years, and the fact that he kept up with the soldiers was a remarkable accomplishment. But there was no question from his letter that he was having the time of his life. The last letter to Helen was dated December 26th. He wrote that he had ridden four miles to mail it. In the last section, he added that he'd recently been given a new sombrero for shooting an enemy soldier at long range. He also noted that the army was going on to Ohinaga, which was under siege by government forces. The letter's closing line read, quote, As to me, I leave here tomorrow for an unknown destination. After that, the Facts of Ambrose Bierce's disappearance end and speculation 
begins. When months passed without further word from Beers, Carrie became concerned. Helen, who didn't hear from her father as often, wasn't worried. Well, not yet. Both women assumed that Beers was too busy to write and was doing exactly what he wanted to be doing, which was living a life of adventure and danger. Each day, they checked their postal box for some colorful letter or expected to get a telegram from Texas saying that he crossed back over the border. But those things never came. Finally, in September 1914, Ten months after her father had gone into Mexico, Helen appealed to the State Department for help finding her famous missing father. The commander of American troops in Laredo was ordered to conduct whatever search might be possible under the circumstances, but there wasn't much else he could do. He did contact American consulate officials in Mexico City, though. All they had were rumors that a man named Beers had been serving as an advisor to Pancho Villa. As far as they knew, he was safe and sound, but they had no way to contact him. But if Beers was alive, why had he not written to Helen or Carrie? There were numerous newspaper correspondence also with Vila's army, and Beers could have asked any of them to send word back that he was safe. Or Beers could have managed to get the letter back over the border himself, as he had with the letter to Helen in December 1913. Word spread that the famous writer might be missing. Well, the public, who'd long been reading his columns and stories, became caught up in the search for clues. But at first, there weren't any. Then in April 1915, an astounding story claimed that Beers was alive and well, but no longer in Mexico. By now, Europe had been plunged into the Great War, and several American newspapers printed a story that claimed Beers was attached to the staff of Britain's Lord Kitchener as a major specializing in recruitment. Helen immediately cabled Washington to verify the story, but when word came back from London, it turned out that the story wasn't true. I can't help but think, though, that the cantankerous Bierce would have been delighted to be the subject of an international hoax, though, especially one that involves England, a country he despised. The Great War, followed by the Spanish influenza epidemic, made it impossible to continue searching for Ambrose Bierce until 1919. By then, the war in Mexico had also ended. George F. Weeks, a friend of Bierce's from California, set out on a personal search for the author in February of that year. Bierce had also sent some letters to Weeks from the Mexican border, but George had heard nothing from his old friend for the past six years. George, like most people, assumed Beers was dead, but he still wanted answers. In Mexico City, George managed to track down one of Vila's former officers who told him that Beers had been killed during a campaign in January 1914. Well, he had no proof of this, only stories, and George was unable to find anything or anyone to verify them. It should be mentioned that if Beers did die on the battlefield, there would likely be no record of it. Pancho Villa, wanting to be seen in a favorable light outside of Mexico, had a policy of keeping names of foreigners off his casualty lists. But this wasn't the only story that George found, or the only story found by others who also searched for the missing author. A few rumors suggested that a federal firing squad had killed Beers, or that the volatile Pancho Villa killed Beers himself after the two of them had argued. 
or that some of Vila's soldiers killed him after one too many insults from his sharp tongue. Some even suggested that Bierce never went to Mexico at all. Instead, he committed suicide because his health was failing and refused to be a burden in his old age. One version of this story claimed he shot himself on the rim of the Grand Canyon and his body was never found because it fell into the canyon below. He didn't go to Mexico, one story said, because he'd been poisoned in El Paso and secretly buried in someone's backyard. That was the true story, the teller insisted, and he could prove it. Spoiler, he couldn't. Another theory suggested that Bierce had gone into Mexico, but later crossed back into the United States to live the rest of his life and die in obscurity so that he could have the last laugh at those who were puzzled by his mysterious disappearance. And while this sounds like something Bierce might have done, it's unlikely he would have carried out such a prank on Carrie, Helen, or on the few close friends he truly cared for. More importantly to Bierce, though, was the attraction of the war. It would have been too great for him to resist going into Mexico. Odo B. Slade, a former member of Pancho Villa's staff, recalled an elderly American with gray hair who served as a military advisor to Villa. The American called himself Jack Robinson, and he often criticized Vila's battle strategies like a man who knew about fighting and military plans. According to Slade, the man who called himself Robinson got into a violent argument with Vila and announced that he was leaving the army. Slade said that Vila shot him and killed him. Is it possible? Sure. But what really happened to Ambrose Bierce remains a mystery that will almost undoubtedly never be solved. The best way to describe his disappearance is to use the words of Bierce himself. He vanished, as he once wrote, into a space through which animate and inanimate objects may fall into the invisible world and be seen and heard no more. And something tells me that's exactly the way he would have wanted it. So it's like, is it the neighbors? Is somebody knocking? I, know, I heard something earlier, but I think it was something outside. But I don't think it's coming through on my Got it. So. Um, all right. Well, we'll go for it. Uh, thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call... Did you actually say a word? I did. I said gone. I, I whispered know. it. Sort I figured of. that was. The Would word. you like me to do different? I, I, I just do different. I just. It just sounded like you. Hey, to- listen. I was listening to this podcast about uh, Bonnie and Clyde, and it was a good podcast. But for some reason, at the beginning of it, someone thought it'd be a really cool idea if they took one of Bonnie's poems and turned it into a song, oh. and then they played it at the beginning of every episode, oh. and it was horrible. And I, so I kept having to skip it. So see, at least we don't do that. I was just looking at, you know, hey, we say the same thing, but no yeah. one's singing, thank God. So, oh man. Oh, anyway, um, 
I'm your co-host Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, founder of American Haunting, Troy Taylor. Ooh, Cody does not approve of the way I announced the uh, title of the. Well, uh, I don't know if something cut out or if it did, but you know, I I tried to imitate static. No, didn't work. Be kind of okay. Yeah, yeah I, I really wasn't. I was trying to just not do the same thing as last time. Well, I like so. it. Yeah, change, 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 change. <laughs> yeah, that was who, it. <laughs> who who signed off on repeating the same poem every time for the beginning? I don't know. Podcast, and like, it's not even. And it, if it was just part of the poem, I would have been like, oh, okay, because it's she's kind of famous for this particular poem that they found in her stuff. Um, but they decided to turn it into like, um, it's a song. Um, and, and it would, it's not even like that singer songwriter kind of vibe you know it's not even that it's like a i don't know it's like bad it's like bad country or something okay pop or something and i'm thinking well who thought this was a good idea and let's do it every episode time it was painful thank god that season only had six episodes so oh man good 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 podcast but sure oh dude so we don't talk about sometimes we'll you know drop podcasts and stuff on here but there's there is a podcast it's nothing to do with anything that we do but um it's these two comedians and charlie baracus actually got me turned on to it it's called dudesy and they it's these two guys not share the same interest in podcasts i've (laughs) I've already discovered this this is so bizarre but what they did is they um (laughs) They let an AI access all their social media, their phones, <laughs> their their emails, and everything. And then the AI gives them prompts and stuff, and like controls the podcast. And they just oh, run wow. with what the AI says. That's uh, it's weird. terrifying and bizarre, yeah. and it's amazing. Huh? huh. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, I got my Doughboys T-shirt on. I see that. See. Yeah. yeah. See, Sam, we just don't. I mean. I respect your interest in the things that you're interested in. Well, oh, thank I do. You. No, I really do. It's just they're not. We don't share many of the same ones. Well, I so. need a break every now and then. I feel like well, you yeah, just see, I, do not. I, I listen to one comedy podcast, and it's a daily show. That's the only one I listen to. Everything else I listen to is uh, murders, missing people. You know, I mean, it's just that's that's just what I listen to. What's you know. the What's the comedy podcast? Oh, I listen to that guy in Chicago, Steve Dahl. I've told oh, you about it before. Yep. And I've gone to some of the live things and stuff there. Uh, I, I've listened to him every day. But other than that, you know, that's yeah, I don't need any humor in my life. Thank you. No whimsy, no humor. So. Right. That's why you teamed up with me to do a podcast. No <laughs> right. humor, nothing. Well, funny. no, because you are the, you know, the the yin to my yang. You're right. So, you know, you're being so um, sentimental today. I oh, not really. It. I just meant that you're funny and I'm not and uh, <laughs> that you're lighthearted and I am not. And so mm-hmm. it's, you know. There it, it works is. out. It does work you, out. You know, so. one of my favorite um, reviews that we ever got was when somebody said they we reminded them of car talk because that was like the highest compliment I've ever gotten because I of love what? car talk. Oh, of car, car talk? Car talk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My accent. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, just, just, well, what, uh, just uh, we're all over the place. Um, we are all over the place. And but, um, if you're not all over the place and you mm-hmm. happen to be in Illinois, Missouri or the St. Louis area. Um, yeah, I know. But next weekend, which would be not this coming weekend when you guys hear this, but Mother's Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why not do something different for your mother and do something with us Mother's Day weekend? Yeah. Um, try to scare your mother to death. I mean, <gasps> you know, why not? But there are lots of moms who like this kind of stuff. And on May 12th, we're doing a Ghost of the River Road tour 
which is like my favorite tour that we do. Um, and then on the 13th, uh, again, that's kind of going along with Mother's Day. I didn't really mean it like this, but it turned out that way. Um, it, it, we're, I'm doing uh, an evening with the American Witch. Oh, at, so maybe that's your stepmother. I don't know. Anyway, um, we are doing that at the Mineral Springs on Saturday, the 13th. And I have updated and revised and did a whole new thing uh, based on my book, One Night in Salem. So it's 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 the pre- it's the history of witchcraft that I did before, but I've updated it. So now it's not the same one. Uh, so it will be a lot of different stuff, kind of like when I redid like the you know, the St. Louis exorcism and stuff when I've mm-hmm. updated that one. So uh, I did that with with um, with the American Witch one, too. So, yeah, last night we did um, and we're recording this on a Sunday. And last night I did a uh, gangs of Southern Illinois presentation. So okay. I will say that the people who came last night, no one else will ever see that version of the program. Because they, they missed out, even though I cut down, it was um over two and a half hours long. So oh boy, yeah, I'm going to have to, I'm going to work on that. I, I do. I did see some things I needed to trim as I was working on it, but you know, the good news is if you're thinking, well, that's some bullshit. Now we don't get the long version of the presentation. Actually, you'll get better in August because the book will come out. So I'm working on a book called, um, uh, blood bullets and booze which will be about the gangs of southern illinois so that's you coming out in, you don't usually give people that far of a heads I up i don't us, right? i don't but i did i gave it away last night because they have the book cover and everything done so nice. but anyway back to the dinners um so you know that's next weekend uh friday night river road tour saturday night evening with the american witch and then in june of course we've got um uh, edgar Allan poe which has always been a favorite um, a new St. Louis exorcism, because the one we have at the end of May has been sold out for like a month. Um, and we also have a brand new river road tour also. So it is uh, different than what we do now. Uh, it's going to be different locations on the river road, not all of them, but some of them will be different. And we're having dinner out at Pier Marquette Lodge, nice, which is fun. So we'll go straight up uh, the river road with some stuff on the way have dinner and then come back play some giant um, chess yeah we well we can if we have time so someone would like to do that uh but they have that family style chicken dinner which is amazing. oh right yes so that that alone is worth going <laughs> you know so anyway so anyway that's a new tour we've got other spring and summer tours dinner events and all that stuff so I always, I keep telling people, you know, they're like, oh, well, we've already done all this stuff in Alton. Well, no, you haven't now because we got a bunch of new stuff. So um, check out dinnerandspirits.com and you can see all the stuff we've got coming up. Um, and then I'm going to make one more mention of this. We're, we're running out of time to mention that the conference is coming and we've got deadlines approaching all over the place. So we're within 100 tickets, actually less now. Uh, when I wrote this, we were within 100 tickets of selling out. Now we have even less. Uh, the deadline to pre-order this year's shirt is coming up. Um, it'll be, uh, I believe it is the, I'm trying to look at my calendar. It'll be the 15th is the deadline on shirts. Okay. Um, yeah. Yep. It'll be the 15th. So that'll be the last chance. Um, a lot of the after hours events that are left are almost full. Um, it's June 23rd and 24th. So it's coming fast. We'd love to see you there. Um, you can check out the website at ghostconference.net. Uh, you'll see the new location, the new stuff we're doing this year, and 
uh, yeah, this thing is going to be great. I yeah. am super excited about it this year. Yeah, I'll let you know uh, if I, I mean, can I'm make always it probably excited day about it, but this is going to be different because we're really, you know, um, it's just, it's just, it's going to be like double what it normally is. That's all I can say. You know, it's just, it's just two times everything we've done before, you know? Right. So I'm, yeah, I'm really jazzed about it. And I think a lot of people are, I've been hearing from a lot of people about how excited they are. You will not even believe some of the stuff we have in the raffle this nice. year. I mean, uh, we have some crazy, crazy stuff this year. Hell yeah. Uh, that I think people are going to love. So Renee's working on a new table. You know, we've got, man, we just got a lot of stuff. And I mean, I, we've really been hunting this year. And mm -hmm. I've been all over the place. I've been on the road quite a bit. So I get a chance to stop into places that I normally wouldn't get to. And it's been, it's been cool, you know, and we've had people coming out of the woodwork, sending us stuff. Um, some friends of ours, Koi and Felicia, mm -hmm. um, are donating it. Well, because Koi won't let it in the house. They're donating this painting that Felicia bought from some people. And the reason that they were getting rid of it is because it's, well, it's one of those crying children paintings, which are, Oh, terrifying boy. anyway but um two of the people that owned it before felicia bought it their houses burned down wow when, with that inside or burned at least did a lot of damage so um anyway koi won't let her bring it in the house so it's sitting in their garage so she's going to pass it on to somebody else so um i don't know i don't know how i feel about that i mean we got a couple of things that I'm going to feel bad if some bad things happen to people because of it, but I figure they, they know the risk. Yeah. They know so what they're signing up for. Why not? You know, why not? So yeah. Anyway, well, I guess we should probably get to <laughs> what we're I, supposed to be doing. I guess. Yeah. Goofing around here. No, I guess so. Yeah. No, I'm super stoked <laughs> for the conference. Um, like I said, I'll let you know probably like day of day before, if I can make it, we'll figure oh, it out. Oh, come on now. Um, no <laughs> better than that. I'm, I'm <laughs> so excited. Um, yeah, and then too. it's, we're going to have the conference hangover after that. And we're going to be sad and I know it. I know it'll it. be here so, again before we know sorry, it. I'll drink my sorrows away in New Orleans again this year. There so. you go. <laughs> uh, all right. So we got a listener review. This one's from, Ben Schuf, I guess. Okay. Uh, it's just titled Love This. It says, Love, love your show. A coworker recommended me to your podcast. I really love them and your outtakes. Gives me a laugh. Find history <laughs> in the paranormal very interesting. So so far, the Alton stories are my favorite. Close to home. I live in Springfield, Illinois. I'm hooked. Oh, yeah. Keep on listening. Home. You guys are great. Um, so thank you so much for that. Someday we've review. got to put together like a half hour blooper reel of, of stuff from you and i on the show that we did put in and me reading monologues uh, i mean yeah i have a lot we of should put stuff. together a whole thing of it and put it just put that up sometime i just have a lot of it <laughs> saved but i thought it was pretty much like we would be canceled if most of it got out oh well so. yeah some of it's pretty bad some of it would be bad when i go Holy into like a 25 word cursing fit because i can't get through a paragraph yes you know so. or you remember oh you remember yeah, you're the, probably right remember the uh the mimosa day oh boy I oh was in, god was in, yeah. was rare oh form. that was bad yeah was in rare form that. that that day yeah that was that was bad <laughs> you know i was going that. through some no things. one give cody champagne so ever. especially in the morning ever never ever it's i'm not that's not a joke that's not a dare that is don't i'm not trying to get somebody to do it just please never do it. Yeah, so, it ever. was uh, yeesh. Yeah. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> July 1854. Is it Orion? Uh, Orion. 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 Oh, like Orion. Orion's yeah. belt. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't. Usually I'll put a pronunciation on there, but I thought, well, 
everybody knows Orion. Well, I don't know why I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't. I'm just. I'm just. Dumb. I know. I know what you mean, though. Sometimes you look at something and you get it in your head that it's one way, and that's the only way you're going to see it. So. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the, the man just vanished, and this actually reminded me of a a Brooklyn Nine Nine thing where this uh, woman like uh, leaves her desk, and Terry Crews is like, he finds her, and he's like, you can't just leave a sign on your desk that says "Gone Leaving." And I, like, I love that. I'm going to start using it all the time. Gone leaving. Uh, but they basically did like a, like a grid search yeah, for this yeah, man. Um, yeah. And they keep hearing his voice. And this is what we talked about last time. It was right? a little the, bit like last voice. time, but that was what in this is what inspired those stories of the voices and the footprints that ended, you know, except in this case, no footprints, middle of summer. Guys stand out in the middle of a field. And, right. um, you know, he ended up calling the account the, uh, you know, the difficulty of crossing a field, mm -hmm. which like really kind of gets right to the point. It you know, does. Good title. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, this guy just was standing out in the field, carriage drove by, they waved at him and he just was gone. Like he got beamed up to the enterprise. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have an explanation for you on some of this stuff. I mean, that's, I mean, I guess that's the point of this season is we don't have explanations for it. And, you know, I guess I, I kind of made jokes about, you know, crackpots and people who had all these theories, but I mean, I guess if you really want to look at it that way, their theories were no worse than anybody else's because <laughs> no one has a clue. Right. You know, there's just no clue to some of this stuff. Well, yeah. So, okay. So somebody is inspired by this story and things like that. And so Ambrose Bierce, is that how you pronounce yes, it? Yes, sir. So I, I was curious about this. Uh, Surely you studied, had something about him in school. Everyone had to read the no, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. That's the thing. I had never heard of this. Person. Oh, you should. I did not should. understand. There's a great episode of the Twilight Zone yeah. too that they did from Owl Creek Bridge, but you should, um, you should look him up. Because his his horror stories are really great. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, um, he he really earned. And he was just one of those guys that was sort of a Western. I mean, I know we're now we're jumping ahead, but it's fine. You know, he was based out of San Francisco, and he really made a name for himself out west. Yeah. Uh, but you know, eventually his stuff ended up you know on the East Coast too. I mean, people got to know him. It's that's a weird. You know, it's a funny timeline right in that period. You know, I mean, Mark Twain, you often think of Mark Twain, oh, 1800s, but he was still writing. I mean, he was still around doing stuff, too. That early 1900s in that era is one that I, I find is one of those kind of looked over periods in American history mm -hmm. um, because it, it just fits in this weird hole where you've got like the Civil War, then you've got like the, the Wild West. And then you get into, you know, what what Mark Twain called the Gilded Age. And then you end up with a couple of like world fairs in there and stuff. But not a lot of people know much about that time period. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I had to uh, I was on a, doing a tour the other night and uh, there's a house in Alton that had um, lights on it that came off uh, a ship called the USS Maine. And it was the cause for us to get involved in the Spanish-American War because they, they blew up the ship. And oh. th th these people had salvaged these lights. They'd somehow bought these lights. Well, they came from the Maine, which was in 1898, a very popular slogan across the United States, remember the Maine. And it was really, you know, and again, I, I'm, gonna, I'm getting off track here, but um, the Spanish-American War was completely hyped up 
by the newspapers. They got us involved in this thing. And so that's where Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and so. So uh-huh. that part of it, people have heard of. Yep. But they don't know anything about the war. They don't know that when the war was over that, you know, we had Cuba, we had a bunch of places in Central America and islands in the Caribbean and the Philippines were all our territories that we we were actually occupying these places, Haiti and and, and all through the, the the Central America and stuff after this war in the early 1900s. We had soldiers everywhere. And that's just all sort of forgotten. And so you end up with like Jack London, who was, I I would say, the most popular writer out of it. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows Jack London because of Call of the Wild. Yeah. I mean, it's a kids read it. It's 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 an adult story and all that stuff. And white fan. Yes, exactly. But I mean, he had a bunch of, of really great books. And I mean, almost everybody in school had to read To Build a Fire. That was a short story by Jack London that people had to read. But he also wrote a lot of like occult stuff too, and was a believer in spiritualism. No and shit. Went to seances and all kinds of stuff. So he's a fascinating character. I mean, he he was like a person out of his stories. I mean, he and his wife sailed around the world and all kinds of stuff. You know, he did some of the Sea Wolf is a great book, but that's the same period as Ambrose Bierce. So for some reason, we kind of just we overlooked that time period. You know, I mean, most most people can't tell you anything about that time period except for the Titanic sank in 1912. That they'll know. And then when World War One came along, suddenly we remember the history again. Yeah, is it but just because it's a time of peace? It is just, I guess. You know, other than like I said, the Spanish American War, which was a, I don't know, man. That's a that's a it's a messy story, but you know, it's it's an interesting one, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, so somehow he's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle, but at the time he was super popular and, you know, most people have only heard of him because of that one story. Um, and that's the one that's most widely read. It's, it's, um, you know, usually I don't remember what year I had to read it in school, but I know it was assigned in probably freshman English or something, because it's not a very long story. And it's, it's one of his civil war stories but it also has kind of, um, you know, not I wouldn't say a supernatural twist, but kind of a little bit of that. So when you get the whole story. Um, but yeah, he was tremendously popular. Um, he wrote so many, you know, he wrote books, but he also did a lot of columns and a lot of essays. He did um, he did a, a book called The Devil's Dictionary. It's not an occult book. Oh, okay. It's uh, it's a writing. It's a book about writing. It's an essay about being pretty much just being an asshole. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like all kinds of like negative things about, you know, what this word really means and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a great book. It's really, it's really funny. Can I, I, mean, can I very, ask, you know, very sarcastic and yeah. It can, can I ask, I don't know if this is a fair comparison or not, but I was, I was, the more I kept reading your, your story and everything and getting more into it, the more intrigued I was, is he like an earlier, like Hunter S Thompson kind of guy? That's, or am I fair? Am I, not I mean, you know, in a completely different without all the drugs, you know, maybe. Um, and it wasn't so that he was doing all of these things himself. It was just he really uh, connected with enough people with his writing. And, you know, as a newspaper writer, uh, which he was for so long, he was a columnist. And that's how a lot of people knew him. And then they picked up his books. And, mm-hmm. you know, he had a lot of short stories and a lot of essays. And, um, you know, he was, an, he did, they didn't coin the phrase curmudgeon, 
uh, for him, but that's that is exactly what he was, and he was a, kind of an early stereotype of the curmudgeon. And you know, I mean, I think we we all get the idea as you read the story that this guy was um, <laughs> he's a handful. Henri, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, well, this brought up another point too that I was wondering. He talked about how he wasn't that great at school, um, but really like loved to write. He was a bored storyteller, and that was something that. I was thinking, um, I wanted to ask you, did you tell stories when you were younger? Did you write a bunch of things or, or just yeah, I mean, I've always liked or... to write the 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 tour stuff and telling stories at events. That that came along later. I mean, I know oh, you didn't really do it thought... when you were a kid or anything. No, I never or... really thought. I mean, I always liked to give book reports and stuff. I was one of those people I I liked to do it. So sure. I guess I'm still doing it essentially. But um you know, that didn't come along until after I had gotten into writing. And, you know, because most people don't do both. Mm -hmm. um, usually people, you're either a storyteller or you're a writer, but you usually don't do both. And I wouldn't call myself a storyteller. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a sit around the campfire. Let me tell you about, you know, the guy with a hook on his hand. Yeah. I'm not, or, you know, anything like that. But I do like to do the presentations and stuff and mm -hmm. spin them as they go. It's fun, you know, but I would call myself a storyteller. I'm certainly not qualified for that People more of a really historian i guess i guess you know and i just like to present the stories and make them fun for people mm -hmm. i guess really um that's the best way i can explain it fair enough so i was, just, I was wondering if there was 10 year old troy around the fire uh, no scared, no scared i mean i'm people. sure i did i'm sure i must have done it some but and you know what's i mean what's doing a tour essentially you're just telling stories right um but you know i've i've written those stories and i've you know I don't know. It's hard to explain. I, I, cause I just don't know what to say about it. I don't know what to call it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> so enough. there you go. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so let's see. He, uh, he returns home to San Francisco, 1874 discovers he's a celebrity yeah. <laughs> since he's been gone. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how, how do people then make the, like back then at least make the leap from columns to books and how do people kind of connect that? You don't have Amazon and stuff like, how yeah. Do you... yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Things were done differently back then. Um, you know, because he had done so much writing in newspapers and stuff, you know, it's free advertising. Um, there were a lot of magazines back then and a lot of literary magazines and even like, you know, Cosmo, Leslie's Illustrated or yeah, Cosmopolitan or Leslie's Illustrated or Harper's Weekly or something. They would often include, in addition to news, which people needed because it's a weekly thing. And that's how a lot of people got their news, except from their local newspapers. Um, they would get, you know, writing stories. They would stories would be included or essays and that kind of thing. So it was just kind of the popular entertainment at the time. And so things spread that way. You know, it, it's not like you would hear them on the radio or TV or, you know, movies or anything. It all just had to spread by print and by word of mouth. And, you know, that's what happened, you know, and for him, you know, he's over in England and he's, you know, writing those magazines and he's becoming popular there, but he never really liked England anyway. So he wasn't upset about coming home. And then when he got home, a lot of his stuff had spread you know, and of course, it's going to end up in San Francisco because that's where he's from, you know, and so they wanted his writings. People there missed him, liked him, wanted to see what he was writing and it got reprinted and, and ended up over here. And now he had a couple of books out and, you know, short story collections 
and things. And that kind of stuff was, um, you know, could make or break you back in those days. Yeah. I did mean, they look just, at Mark Twain and people like that. Did you know? they like him so much just because he trashed England like while he was there? So I much? think that people just appreciated his sarcasm and his humor because I don't I don't I don't think that often like Mark Twain would often write a lot of mean things. But, you know, people he was funny. Yes. Beers was not as as funny as say Mark Twain. He never considered himself a humorist. But a lot of the stuff he wrote was very dry and sarcastic. And there's always an audience for that. And sure. I think that's one of the things that people liked about him. But they also liked his, you know, his war stories and things were really gritty. And, you know, you got to think we're only 10 or 12 years away from when the war was fought. And so he's putting out, he's writing stories that are about what happened during the war. He was there. He right. saw it all. And for people who weren't there or who were kids, you know, that's a chance for them to see what it was like from somebody who was there, Ugh. you know, plus he also had this, you know, as I mentioned here, he had this following for his, um, his horror stuff too, you know, because there wasn't a lot of that available. I mean, there, there was, but it wasn't always easy to find, you know, it would be included in magazines and stuff. And most of those writers, you know, their reputations didn't survive. I mean, we don't know there were, I'm sure there were hundreds of, of horror writers during that time period but we know of you know a hundred of them or 50 right. of them you know and, but his stuff was popular and you know he he had a following because of the you know the the horror stuff he wrote and the the unex the disappearances he wrote entire books like can such things be as a collection of mostly his strange disappearance stories you know it's a great book you know it's a it's fascinating to read it and all of that stuff was inspired by real events. That's why he wrote them and fictionalized them. So interesting. I can't, I can't believe I've never heard of him until today, but I'm going to have to check out some of his stuff. Yeah, um, I think you would enjoy it. I love how you talk about him working with uh, Hearst. Hearst and, who, and just, as you know, I despise yes. from every past season. Yes. All of our L.A. and Hollywood seasons, all I talked about was how much I didn't like Hearst. And now he says working for Hearst has all the satisfactions of masturbation. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that sounds not like a bad gig, though. I don't. Uh, I, yeah, I, don't. I think he means that it it seems good, but it's it, not satisfying in the end, I think is the point. But Hearst it. couldn't have cared less. I, I, th I have a feeling, because both of them were kind of jerks, I have a feeling that that was more for show than uh -huh. anything else. Although really he didn't get along with anybody. So not really. So, I mean, Aside his daughter his, and his secretary, yeah, right, right, he right. had friends. I mean, I, you know, some of his friends do pop up in the story. And so, yeah, I mean, he did have friends, but, you know, I think he was sort of, you know, not easy to, not, uh, not easy to love. You know? And you said, yeah, he decided to, like, it kind of seems like you said he decided to pick up drinking and I'm like, well, he's an author. So uh -huh. I guess that makes well, sense. Right, exactly. But, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's just like, just out of nowhere. It's just like, I'm just gonna, yeah, just, I've decided I'm going to see how much I can drink, you know? Yeah. And his goal was always to still be standing when he paid for the last round. That was it. Yeah. I mean, good so, for you, bud. I, know, I guess right? love cats, hated dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weird. So, and then have the, the the lizard and the toad that yeah, was pets. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. It, that actually reminds me of like a like a Rango thing, which kind of goes back yeah. to fear and loathing and yeah, all that sort of stuff. But so he <laughs> so he goes to Mexico. Is he just a violent man? Just likes the no, chaos? No, or? no, no. I don't think so. Um, you know, the first thing he wanted to do, you know, he gets to this point and he's he realizes, you know, I'm old. 
I don't know how long I'm going to live. My health isn't great. I've had, you know, asthma for so many years. And he wanted to take a, a battlefield tour mm-hmm. and sort of relive what he considered to be his glory days. Like he told that reporter, he didn't think he'd really ever been worth much. Even though he'd achieved this great career and made all kinds of money and things, he never thought he was worth much after the war was over mm. because he felt that it wasn't that his he had some weird taste for violence. It was the, you know, the honor, the camaraderie, you know, the just being a soldier. I mean, people are born for that, man. They yeah. just are. There are people who do it and that's their that's their life. And so that was that was how we felt about it. He wanted to go back and visit these places. But, you know, not only did he want to relive his past, he also wanted to go and see firsthand a war that was happening right now. And that's the only one that he could easily get to that was going <laughs> on. And it was right there at our border. Plus, at that point, Pancho Villa was seen as kind of a Robin Hood type anti-hero, you know, trying to help the people, you know, I mean, okay, listen, that's another whole story. There's a great book on it called The War on the Border, um, because eventually we ended up sending soldiers into Mexico to chase him down. Uh But at that point, he was still being kind of glorified in our country because, um, you know, the 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 dictator of Mexico, uh, Huerta, was completely you know, a complete monster, you know, I mean, he was just like feeding off the people. And so now we, there were several guys, it wasn't just Pancho Villa, it was others too, but they decided to launch a revolution and overthrow the government. And this still looked like, you know, to people reading about it in magazines and newspapers, it seemed like, you know, fortune and glory, you know, um, our military was kind of like, yeah, I think we'll just kind of hang out on this one and and see what happens. But you know, people really wanted, and, you know, for beers, that was something he wanted to experience. I don't even know, apparently he did, but I don't even know if he went there with the idea of I'm going to fight in this war. I think he just wanted to experience it again, the action and the the danger and that kind of thing. I mean, I think this was a guy with a, you know, it was an adrenaline junkie, Yeah, but he was in his seventies. So there was only so much he could do, but sure. You know, off he goes to Mexico. Um, and, you know, like he said to that reporter, I'm on my way to Mexico because I like the game. I like fighting and I want to see it. So interesting. Yeah. What a strange man. He's a strange man. Um, but we'll yeah. never know what happened to him. And, and it's not even there's no, you know, despite the way that I, you know, it's it reads is, you know, eerie wrote about, you know, but really, I mean, we'll never know what happened. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of people disappeared during that time period. A lot of people died. And um, like some of the people told his friends, you know, if he died fighting with Pancho Villa, Villa wasn't going to put him on the casualty list because he didn't want to take a chance. Yeah. You know, he still wanted to look good because he was getting support from other countries. And, you know, having a writer who at that time was pretty damn famous die on his watch was not going to look good for his army or I mean, army sometimes was a strong word for that ragtag bunch of people right. he had with him. I mean, it's, a, it's a fascinating, again, though, see, that's one of those things that falls in that time period that Americans don't know anything about. I mean, the very first time that our country was ever attacked by a foreign army was during this war. I mean, Pancho Villa crossed the border and raided a couple of towns, you know, once we got into an antagonistic you know, situation with him. And, but people don't remember that. 
you know, people don't know anything about it, you yeah. know, and it's, it's, I love that little time period in history. Obviously I, you know, I write the, the ax murder books and I, I, you know, I, I focus a lot on that stuff because it is forgotten. And I think it's such an interesting time period. Maybe it's, right on that cusp in between the 19th and 20th centuries, you know, yeah. and modern times. It's just, I don't know. I Maybe don't know. that time period just needs better branding. Cause it's like, you know, uh, <laughs> remember the, it doesn't Alamo. really have a name. You know, that's the thing, you know, it's, you know, there's so many time periods, you know, you've got the civil war era, the wild west era, the gilded age, right, um, great you've got the, you know, the gay nineties and the 1890s, but wherever they up. But then right after there's nothing, there's nothing at the beginning of the, of the, the century, you've got world war one that kind of kicks it off. And it's that, that narrow little window in there. Maybe people are just like tired. The, 1893 world's fair and world war one that's fascinating to yeah me. but so so anyway I, I forced everyone to experience it yet again no i i love it i, <laughs> I saw um actually i saw a meme the other day that was talking about uh it's like back in the day some guy looked up at the stars and he pointed out four of them and said that's a bear and everybody was so tired from trying to fight the plague that they just didn't argue with him yeah. and i feel like that's time period they're just like whatever like yeah. we're, we're exhausted we're just trying to live yeah, yeah. you know no um, man so, so, I mean, well, that, I mean, that's it. He was, he was in a war zone and he's, he's, he's gone. We don't, yeah, he disappeared, we don't but you know, and I, I'm going to say that, you know, that's probably exactly how he wanted to go. I bet, you know, I mean, that's why people were saying, oh, he killed himself and he, you know, fell off the grand Canyon and that doesn't sound like him. You know, what mm -hmm. sounds like him is him with a revolver in each hand, riding up against the national federal army that yeah. sounds more like him you know and getting gunned down off his horse that sounds more like it but a blaze of glory i did find it i did like that one story that guy who was on pancho Villa's staff who said that there was an american who was using the name jack robinson so what yeah. that means probably nothing to you but well, jack so robinson was kind of one of those tag names like you know john jacob jingleheimer schmidt kind of okay. thing but jack robinson was you know as faster than jack robinson you know there it was like a it was like a comic phrase kind of thing oh, okay. it was more to the story and so he's using this kind of silly phrase from the time period that they, they wouldn't have gotten it down there so for all we know we didn't even via didn't even know who he was i mean i'm gonna guess he'd never like you had never read an ambrose pierce book yeah except he had an excuse you do not wow. but i'm Damn. just kidding oh man just calling me out well i'm gonna have yeah. to rectify that and check yeah out some just of give stuff. a couple of, even if nothing else just some of the short stories a, a try i think you'll enjoy them yeah hell yeah all right well i want to give a quick shout out to uh some of our uh newest subscribers on patreon so thank you so much for supporting the show to kylie jenny sarah jane sarah amy chikaruna uh john jamie and kia yeah we're we're starting to pile we're starting to stack up everybody knows that this next week is the first episode of the neck of the of season three of dead men do tell tales That's so bizarre. we are coming up soon and um it's it's ready to roll so may 9th you're gonna see it pop up um on patreon if you're already a supporter um if you're not you should be um so you can listen to a new podcast every week and we'll have lots of news about things coming up, but that's something you'll get to hear every week uh, after this main one. But we're also going to put um, on the ninth a trailer for that Patreon season 
up here where you guys are listening now. And if just us teasing it doesn't convince you, maybe the trailer will. So, because it's, I think, going to be a good season. I'm excited. I'm excited. About it. Yeah, I'm going to so. put a crazy filter on Troy's voice for the trailer too, and make him sound like, um, no, I don't know, Darth um, Vader. Yeah, what not? Yeah, James Yoda. Earl Jones. <laughs> um awesome okay well it is now time for our ghostwriter segment so if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre you can email us at american hauntings podcast at gmail.com this one comes to us from brian the subject is best horror films of the year says hey guys love the podcast i've been listening over the past year or so and really enjoy the stories and the depth of the research you do at the end of the year i was also pleasantly surprised to find the best horror films of the year episode i love horror try to catch as many films as i can can so it was a treat to hear what you saw and liked or disliked compared to what i've seen plus it gave me more movies to watch that i didn't see last year our tastes are pretty similar so i've already found a few things that i missed last year that are great finding previous year's episodes for the best of and wondered if you have a list somewhere of these movies that fans could reference i often listen to your episodes while working out or doing yard work and don't always have an easy chance to jot mm. the movies down or add them to letterbox uh, any chance you could just make a list of your favorites from the previous years available on the website i'll still be listening to the older episodes of the best of and the show in general this would make it easier for me to reference when i add stuff to letterbox and maybe you've made it available already and i just don't know where to look in which case if you could point me in the right direction <laughs> in that case tell me where it is yeah yeah <laughs> thanks again uh, if you if you're ever doing a stop for one of your conferences shows down in north florida i'll definitely be there brian uh so I don't have, I, did we ever do that? I, I did for a should. couple, I did for a couple oh, of episodes, but, but yeah, I just need to do it. I just yeah, we could just put page. them up. Yeah. We could just put them up on one page and just put that was well yeah. we decided on for the year. Yeah. So. Cause we still have the, I have the docs and spreadsheets and all that shit. Mm -hmm. it, would, it wouldn't right. take that long. And I don't okay. know why I haven't done this. Okay. So. Well, cool. Yeah. Brian, thanks for the idea. Yeah. Um, That's all I got, dude. Yeah. And, and you know what, when we were talking about Patreon, I didn't tell people where they could sign up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Um, Patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Um, and that way you can get, well, all the other stuff that we do, too, through Patreon. But also uh, we will have that new podcast up starting next week. And there's two full seasons on there now already right. that you can listen to. And then we'll have a new one coming very soon. So, Hell yeah. Uh, also, the other thing we should mention, um, discount code for the podcast. We were talking about people signing up for stuff. Um, and if you are, use this promo code because it's going to save you 10% off anything you order. Um, and that's reservations that you make, events that you're coming to, uh, books that you want to buy, shirts, it doesn't matter, even Cody's shirt store, uh, American Hauntings Clothing, you can use it there too. And the promo code is just podcast. That's it. You're um, making you money. Put it in there. Yeah, no kidding. You're you're making you're making money listening to a free podcast. Yeah. So all you have to do is use it when the promo code box pops up when you're checking out. Put it in there, and you automatically get ten percent off everything you order from both stores. So hell yeah, or from all of our stuff. Really doesn't matter which one it's from, long as it's our stuff, and you use that in the promo code in the checkout. You're always going to get that 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 discount. Absolutely. Did you know yeah. I found the other day somebody made a Reddit for us? Oh no. Years ago. Nothing's happened. Nothing's happened there, but they oh, made okay. like a community thing there oh. and nothing got posted. Yeah, but they I, made I it know so little about Reddit. I that yeah, I it's not a fun place. I, I just I can't figure it out. I don't well, I it's something I can't figure it out. I just 
don't have that kind of time. I just don't get I, just the, don't. I don't get the appeal, but I, I know that, I don't either. I just I don't have the time for it. I just don't. Yeah. Well, they were like very specific to be like, this is not being done by Troy or Cody. This is an independent <laughs> thing. I was like, oh my gosh, somebody cares enough about yeah. us to do that. Yeah. But but then not that much because then they didn't do anything else with it. So. Uh, yep. <laughs> you know, I like the A forever um, execution, but uh, yeah. Um, all right. Well, should I go into my yeah, spiel? I guess we're, uh, well, I guess we're wrapping it up. So we'll, um, we'll see everybody next time. Uh, we'll be back on um, the 16th with our next regular episode, but keep that on your calendar for the 9th. Uh, don't forget. May 9th, first episode of the new Patreon. Um, and don't forget, Mother's Day weekend, let us scare you. Friday oh, night, yeah. River Road Tour, Saturday night, American Witch. You know what I was thinking is also if you're a mother and you want to go to this, you could drag your children and be well, like, that see how true. much worse I could have been? Yeah, well, that's true. You know, that it could work both ways. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So. So anyway, I don't know. I need to take a nap. Um, this episode of the American Hollies podcast was written by Troy Taylor. And it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street about it. And follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. See the website. That's probably about it, isn't it? Really? Well, uh, I guess there's a few other things. Well, like I mean, I just says, places. And anywhere you listen. I mean, how many, who listens oh. anywhere besides those? Unless you just like I, listen I, to it right off our website, I can break down the the. Statute. Oh, Amazon Music. Yeah, I forgot that's Pandora. Uh, oh yeah, does that still exist? Yeah, some people we listen are. to it on a wearable too, which I'm guessing is a watch. Really? And I'm like, how does that? I don't know. But okay. yeah, American well, Hollies all right. podcast. I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have said anything. Yeah, so. you're fine. For more, but I mean, it's you know, notes, listen like on more. Apple Podcasts. That's mostly where people listen, I think. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like okay. over what? I'm just nine percent probably. Sorry. Um, yeah. This is listen, this is the appropriate time for us to have this conversation. Yeah. Uh, you can also find us on well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> TikTok and Ugh. anywhere else you waste hours every day when you're supposed to be working or studying or Reddit or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. We promise that we're much more entertaining. Thanks for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. We'll see you later. All right. <laughs> Another one down. Yeah. Hey, did you see anything um, coming up on Facebook? Or